0: Our second reading this morning is from Luke chapter 3. I will read verses 1 through 6. Hear the word of the Lord. On the 15th in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of, of Ituria and And Trachonitis and uh, Lysanias, a tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Ananias and uh, uh, Sophia, the word of the Lord came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness, and he went into all the region around Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written, in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be lifted. Every, every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh sa- shall see the salvation of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father God, we ask for your help and for your presence this day in the proclamation of your word. We thank you for uh, the gathering of the saints uh, around your word this day and around your table. I pray that you would be present here with us, that you would minister to us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so if any of you have um, anti-anxiety meds with you this morning in your pockets or in your purses. You might want to pull them out right now. And if you got any extras, you might want to hand them down to Pew because this sermon may trigger you. Alright? Uh, I uh and if it doesn't trigger you, it may trigger the person who was next to you and that may set us all off as a kind of chain reaction here uh, uh, this morning. This morning I'm going to preach A message that is going to upset the lizard brain, that's the non-rational part of our brain, that's the part that freaks out, that does the flight or fight thing, that gets triggered. What I have to say this morning has political overtones. And brain scans show that when we talk about politics, our limbic system, our lizard brain is extremely busy, which is why political talk is so triggering, which is why political talk is banned from the Thanksgiving dinner table, which is why political talk should be banned from the pulpit. Samuel Miller, who was the second professor at Princeton Theological Seminary, he died in 1850, He wrote a book titled Thoughts on Public Prayer, and that may be the second best book I read while I was in seminary right behind the Bible. It contains the wise advice of an older seasoned pastor to the young men who were coming up to become pastors themselves. And regarding politics, in the pulpit, Miller is blunt, don't do it. It is impolitic. He writes, it is cruel. It often presents the most serious obstacle to the success of the gospel. Politics in the pulpit often presents the most serious obstacle to the success of the gospel. And if we are not in the business of promoting the success of the gospel, then what in the world are we doing in the church? It seems funny to think about it now. But the hot issue in the Presbyterian church when Miller first began teaching at Princeton was the War of 1812. Anyone here have strong feelings about the War of 1812? What's your position on it, by the way? I'm curious. Political platforms and political programs come and they go. We take them so seriously in the moment. Political platforms are about lower order goods. They're about good things, but they're about lower order goods. The gospel, however, convicts and converts in every generation. It's always fresh. And that's because the gospel is about the highest good. Politics are about lower goods. gospel's about the highest good. And every other good besides the gospel needs to bend its knee to the highest good. Which is why anyone who confuses the gospel with a political platform has traded pearls for pebbles. All right, enough beating around the bush. Let me strike the match. I want to make three points. They're really the same point. <clears throat> three points that have, in our time, a certain political. Resonance. I'm not making these points because they are political. I'm making these points because they are gospel, but I'm warning you about the political overtones in case your lizard brain begins to twitch. Number one, if you are suffering and unhappy, you need to repent. Number two, if you are oppressed and abused, you need to repent. And number three, if you expect someone to come and clean your house for you, then you better get busy clearing the sidewalk so they can get in your front door. Everybody okay so far? Some would say that those statements are guilty of blaming the victim. The suffering, unhappy, oppressed, abused person waiting to have their house cleaned. It just seems wrong to say to those people that they're responsible for their own suffering. When you tell a suffering person that he is responsible for his own suffering, some would say that you are blaming the victim. And this phrase, blaming the victim, was coined in 1971. I'll get around to the history of it in a minute. I first heard this phrase in the 1980s. I was an undergraduate at Marlboro College, my hippy-dippy alma mater up in vegan Vermont. I was sitting at a lunch table, and a woman at my table made a disparaging remark about another woman who had just walked into the dining hall, and she was all dolled up like Snooky from Jersey Shore. Now, you have to understand that women at Marlboro... And there are no girls or gals at Marlboro, only women, spelled W-O-M-Y-N. Women at Marlboro don't wear makeup, nor do they shave their legs, because women at Marlboro uh, are woke to the fact that the entire beauty industry is part of the patriarchal, phalogocentric, heteronormative power structures that were created to oppress and subjugate women. So the student, who disparaged her unenlightened sister, she then was set straight by an even more righteous, more woke person, a man, in this case, at our table, who said, I don't buy into all of that blaming the victim crap. It's not her fault that corporate America has poisoned her mind. Now, both of these individuals agreed that the snooky look was not the way to go, that it was somehow wrong or immoral or unwoke, but they disagreed about who was responsible, who was to blame. Is the woman to blame or is corporate America to blame? Let me talk a little bit about this history of the phrase blaming the victim because it will lead us... to the biggest of all triggers in American political life, and that is race. The relationship between white folks and black folks in this country of ours. In 1965, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who would later become a powerful Democrat senator from New York State, he was uh, an academic sociologist, and he was working as the assistant secretary of labor Uh, under Democrat President Lyndon Johnson. In 1964 and 1965, some of you are old enough to remember this, the Johnson administration was putting together a legislative program known as the Great Society, which had as its goal the total elimination of poverty and racial injustice in America. If you're going to dream big, dream big. And part of the work of Johnson's Labor Department was a 1965 report on black poverty titled The Negro Family, the Case for National Action. It's come to be called the Moynihan Report because Moynihan was the chief author. Moynihan builds on an idea which he borrows from a 1930s sociologist, a black man by the name of E. Franklin Frazier, and Moynihan argues in this report that the rise in the number of single black mother families, a household arrangement that correlates statistically with a number of uh, problems, that this rise was not caused by a lack of economic opportunity, but rather had its roots in a vein of destructive culture going back to slavery times and then uh, persisting through Jim Crow. The conventional wisdom in academic sociology at the time was that our economic conditions determine or create or produce our social conditions. If you change the economic conditions, the social conditions will change too. Solve the poverty problem, and social problems will go away too. That was the presumption of the entire program of the Democratic Party at the time. If we fix the economic problem, then people and society will become good. Unfortunately, Moynihan's work which set out to establish the data-driven statistical grounds for what everybody thought that they already knew, came to a different conclusion. That economic conditions don't produce social conditions, but rather that social conditions produce economic conditions. That's what the data showed in Moynihan's report. And so Moynihan argued that if the economic problems in America are to be solved, our cultural problems need to be addressed. The report concluded that the high rates of families headed by single mothers would hinder the progress of the black community toward economic and political equality in the United States. All right, so that's the Moynihan Report, 1965. In 1971, psychologist William Ryan writes a book rebutting Moynihan's report. Okay, And his book is called blaming the victim, all right? And that phrase has stuck in our language. Ryan describes blaming the victim as an ideology used to justify racism and social injustice against black people in the United States. According to Ryan, Moynihan's theories were just an attempt to shift responsibility for poverty, from the social structures, we would call that institutional racism today, to shift that responsibility for poverty from the social structures to the behaviors and the cultural practices of the poor people themselves. All right? I hope you're following me. This is pretty complicated. There are two views. One view says, you have a problem? Are you suffering? Are you unhappy? Are you oppressed? Are you abused? Well you need to repent. You need to change what you're doing. That's the Moynihan report. The other view says, you have a problem? Are you suffering, unhappy, oppressed, and abused? Well, society needs to repent. Society needs to change what it's doing. That's the William Ryan don't blame the victim report or the counter report. And which view we take on this issue is probably a very accurate indicator of which party we are most likely to vote for. I know this is a terrible sermon. We're really down in the political mud. So what does this have to do with Advent? It really is connected. Let me take a step backward. Let me go back to what we do agree on. All people, regardless of where they stand on the political spectrum. All people agree that there are things in this world, there are things in our lives that are just not the way they should be, that are not the way that we want them to be. I could give you a whole laundry list of things in my life that are wrong, of my woes, things that are not right in my body and in my marriage and in my job and in my family and in my nation and with my neighbors i got more problems than you can shake a stick at. And I bet you do too. All people, regardless of where they stand on the political spectrum, agree that people suffer. That we suffer too much. And that this suffering should be fixed. So who's to blame? Who's responsible? Theologically, at least, we as Christians point to the fall as the root of human suffering. In the beginning, in the garden, there was no suffering. Things operated the way God wanted them to operate. Things were sweet and good until, well, you know what happens. And then brothers start killing brothers and everything goes to pot. And the reason that we need a savior is because the world is such a mess. Pretty soon, in a couple of weeks, we're going to be singing joy to the world, And the third verse of that hymn pictures the coming time when our salvation is completed, when the world is renewed, and when the world is restored to God's original plan. It says, "Let uh, "...no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He, Jesus, comes to make His blessings flow." Far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. What Jesus the Redeemer does is save us from the curse of the fall. That curse infects our lives, of course. But it also infects every corner of creation. When Jesus comes again, he's not just going to snatch us away and take us to some perfect heaven and leave this world to rot. Jesus is coming to create a new heaven and a new earth where there will be no curse because there will be no sin. What Jesus saves us from is sin. He doesn't, by the way, save us from the devil. The devil may tempt us, but our problem isn't the devil. Our problem is our own sin. Sin is the willful disobedience of people who know better and could do better. Jesus saves us from our sin. His atonement on the cross saves us from the eternal consequences of our sin. It is also true, however, that God does save his people from the sins of others. We do suffer in this life because of our sins. Our bad choices have consequences in this world. But we also suffer because of the sins of other people. Abel wasn't looking to get killed by his brother. Four kids who were gunned down at Oxford High School on Tuesday, didn't go to school looking to be killed. We suffer because of the sins of other people too. And the way that we deal with sin is we repent. The very first word out of John's mouth, John the baptizer, was repent the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The season of Advent is a season of preparation. The word Advent simply means arrival. Advent is the season where we prepare for the arrival of the Christ child at Christmas. It's also the time of year that we in the church traditionally think about being prepared for the second coming of Christ. Christ came one time. He's coming back. We need to be ready for His return. What do we do to get ready? We get our houses ready. For the arrival of Christmas guests, there have been people here working during the week, getting this sanctuary ready so that we can worship here as things become more and more Christmassy. But what are we doing to get ready for the arrival of Jesus? Our three readings this morning talk about what we need to be doing. Our reading from Luke chapter 1 is called Zechariah's Song. Zechariah is the father of John the Baptizer. He's some kind of uncle to Jesus himself. And filled with the Holy Spirit, he begins to sing or to prophesy a prophecy about the salvation of Israel And about the role that John is going to play in that salvation and the song begins, blessed be the Lord God of Israel for he has visited and redeemed his people and raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. The God of Israel comes to redeem Israel. To redeem means to buy a slave out of slavery. A slave, of course, doesn't own anything, doesn't accumulate anything, and so a slave can never redeem himself. A slave needs a redeemer, a savior who comes in from the outside to redeem him. And that's what God does for us. The Bible tells us that outside of Christ, we are slaves not to the devil, but we're slaves to our flesh and to our sin and as a slave we cannot free ourselves. We need this Redeemer to come help us. The God of Israel has raised up a horn of salvation in the house of David. A horn of salvation is one of those old Hebrew images. I personally think of a mobile tower of refuge during a war, a kind of impenetrable armored tank in which we are safe from our enemies. That's what God raises up in the house of David, in the lineage of kings that came out of King David, which, of course, comes down to Jesus himself, the final and the eternal king in the Davidic kingdom. It's God who does that work, and he does it for us. Verse seventy-four and 70, uh, 71 and 74 tell us more about who he saves us from, We should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. We are delivered from the hands of our enemies. Oh, yeah. If you need someone to save you, there's something that they're saving you from. What does God save us from? Well, he saves us from our enemies, from those who hate us. There is both a this-worldly and a spiritual component to that. The this-worldly enemies of God's people are minions operating at the command of a spiritual enemy. Sometimes you're attacked by Joe or Josephine, but behind that attack is Satan himself. God promises, Israel, I will always stand with you. And so Satan, who hates God, spends a lot of time attacking Israel. Anti-Semitism is Satanic Zechariah seems to say that the problems of Israel need to be uh, the problems that Israel needs to be saved from are enemies who are outside our enemies those who hate us the hand of those who hate us that's what Israel needs to be rescued from is how the beginning part of that song begins but then listen to where he goes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Listen to the punchline of Zechariah's song. And you, O child, John, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways to give knowledge of salvation to His people. Here's the punchline. In the forgiveness of their sins. What? My sins? What about my awful enemies who are persecuting me? Isn't that the source of my troubles? Why would I need to be rescued from my sins? What we need is God to save us from the sins of other people, from their misdeeds, from their cruelty, from their injustice. You know, our spouses and our bosses and America itself. God save us from these awful people. Instead, what the Bible says is, That the salvation of God's people is in the forgiveness of their own sins. I've got trouble around me. I've got enemies who hate me. And who are trying to destroy me. And what is it that God sends? God sends someone who can take away my sin. Because my sins are the root of my problem. Isn't that blaming the victim? In Malachi, we get a description of the coming of the Lord, the messenger prepares the way and now the Lord comes. What's he like? What's this savior described to be like? He's like a refiner's fire and fuller's soap, that soap with lye in it. Do I want a savior who's going to smoke me with fire? Do I want a Savior who's going to burn me like lye soap? I do if I want to get the dross out. I do if I need to get some stains out. All too often, we want God to purify and clean up those people. The ones who are giving me trouble. But we don't want Him to clean up our lives. The fundamental question, and the question that I was trying to fuss with in the opening discourse about blaming the victim, the fundamental question is this, whose sin do I want God to save me from? Look, every one of us in here have been the victims of the sins of other people. All of us have suffered Some kinds of wrongs and injustices. There's no question about that. And sometimes we cry out to God for help about that. We ask for relief. How long, O Lord, we hear the psalmist cry. How long will my enemies be exalted over me? That's that's an appropriate prayer. If people are oppressing you, cry out to God. Ask for help. Ask Him to do something about it. That's an appropriate prayer. There's nothing wrong with that. But here's the thing. While the sins of other people may make me uncomfortable and miserable, it's my own sins that make me damnable. What I need to be saved from is not the sins of other people or the sins of the nation or the sins of the past. What I need to be saved from is my sin. The sins of other people might make me suffer, but it is my own sins that will kill me, body and soul. Which is why the psalmist also sings, Wash away my iniquities. Cleanse me from my sins. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. In our final reading this morning, familiar passage where Luke quotes Isaiah in characterizing the message of John the Baptizer prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. Messiah is coming. Let's get things ready for him. There's an image in the book of Revelation. There's an image of Jesus standing at a door and knocking. And he says, I'll come in and I'll have dinner with you if you'll open the door to me. But sometimes I wonder if the walkway up to our front door is so cluttered with toys and trash and tree limbs that Jesus could never even get to our door if he wanted to. Prepare the way of the Lord, Scripture commands. Make His paths straight. Get the junk out of the way. Who needs to do that? Well, we do. You know, if God is absent in your life, you can't point... To other people or to your circumstances for the coolness of your faith you have to make the path straight if you've lost your closeness with Jesus don't blame your church make straight the path if you're not feeling or seeing spiritual fruit in your life, if you're not growing don't complain about your spouse or your boss, or your kids who are not cooperating with your spiritual journey. Make straight your path. Messiah is coming. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let us pray. Father God, you have loved us because you made us and you imprinted us with your own image. You've made each one of us infinitely valuable. Every one of us counts. Lord Jesus, you came into this world to seek and to save those who were lost. Lord, we confess that we are prone by nature and by habit to wander away from you to do things our own way. We confess that we've suffered because of our own willfulness. Yeah, sometimes we've suffered because of other people. That's true. We do ask you to relieve that suffering, but Lord, we've discovered the enemy and he is us. And so, Lord, we pray that you would save us from our sins. We pray that you would... Give us the wherewithal and the stamina to clear out the clutter that like gets in the way of the spiritual journey that you have us on. Lord, you have called us each individually in peculiar ways. No one's path is the same as anyone else's, but they all, these paths, they lead to you. And so we hear your voice and you call us forward. We pray that we would move into what it is that your Holy Spirit is calling us into. And I pray that we would get the stuff out of the way that clutters our thoughts, that fills our time, that jams up our agendas. I pray that we would take time this Advent season to be quiet with you. To sort out those things that count and those things that will last and those things that man, they just don't matter. Lord, forgive us for having wandered away from you. Forgive us for always insisting on doing things our way. Forgive us also for always looking to shift the blame to someone else for our own troubles. Give us the courage and the fortitude to stand up under the examining gaze of the Holy Spirit. Lord, convict us of our sins. Help us work on what's going on in our lives. And Lord Jesus, if there is anyone here this morning who has not yet responded to you consciously and intentionally, who has not repented and turned to you and said, Be my Savior, be my Lord, I pray that this day would be the day that they would turn to you. Lord, you call, but you don't force yourself on us. You knock and you tell us to open the door. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.